you know, something interesting you just said was that you tend to defend the East when you're in the West and the West when you're in the East. Um, me, because being a woman, having lived in both places back and forth, I tend to point out the similarities because I see it in both places. I see all of these different forms of oppression uh, of women or, or, um, not respecting women in certain ways. I see it in both places. Rape culture exists in both places and it's very linked to capitalism and to the films and music that we're exposed to and to the advertising that we see and the products we buy and the, the porn we watch, you know, and that our kids watch. And so it's it's um, it's this huge money-making machine that's profiting off of um, using the female body and really objectifying her to where she objectifies herself and tries to look like Kardashians as well and doesn't feel she's worthy if she doesn't look like that. Welcome to Own the Future, a podcast built for and by a tribe of changemakers where we gain freedom to own our story, confidence to own our craft, and power to own the future. And this is the first episode of 2019 and I am excited to have with us on the show today, Ahad Niazi. She is the chief editor, publisher, and founder of Jehanamiya, which is the first feminist literary magazine in Saudi Arabia. She has built a platform that amplifies and and magnifies the voices of women across the Gulf in the Middle East. She is currently getting her PhD from the University of Michigan. And Ahed, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Before we jump into it, a little caveat. Uh, we had a lot of technical issues trying to get this uh, show recorded. And because of it, the sound quality, ironically enough, on my end wasn't the greatest. But the good news is you're not hearing my voice primarily on this episode. You're hearing Ahed's and her voice comes through crystal clear and the message that she carries also comes through crystal clear. So without further ado, let's get into the show. So Ahed, I'd, I'd love to start by just asking, um, just about your upbringing, where were you born? Where are you from? Your Saudia, you know, lay that out there for us. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here and to have this conversation as well. Um, so I was born in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Both my parents uh, lived in Jeddah. And then when I was six months old, they moved to Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I like to refer to myself as a Southern Saudi girl. <laughs> they, um, both my parents are dentists and they got the Saudi scholarship to go do their residencies at the University of Birmingham. So I, Congratulations. Um, yeah, they, they're pretty cool. Uh, they're very cool actually. So they studied there and I grew up there and then my mom, uh, pursued a, a kind of a change in career and went into public health and did more school. And so we ended up living in Birmingham for almost the first 12 years of my life. Um, and then what? And then you came back to Jeddah, is that correct? Exactly. Then we moved back to Jeddah, and that was my first time ever living in Saudi. I had visited um, 
visits were very different than, than the reality of living there. You know, visits were like right. being at grandpa and grandma's house and uh, going out on fun outings and everybody spoiling you. And then living there was like, oh, I have to go to school now and I have to learn how to be part of the society that I, that I really had no um, solid background on. Like I had what my mm. parents taught me in the home, but what I learned quickly when I moved to Saudi was the difference between being in the home and being outside the home, being with your family mm. and what you could say around them versus what you could say around others. And and I learned this as a young woman, as someone who was on the verge of, of hitting puberty and becoming a woman and learning all this other stuff about how women are treated in the world. Um, so it was, it was a really like challenging time for me. I would say like 12 to like... What age, what age did you guys move back? I was, I was exactly 11 and a half when we moved back. Wow. Yeah. Um, and did you guys, when you were in the West, in Alabama, were, would your parents speak uh, Arabic to you in the home? They would. They would. My mom... Um, would you still consider your mother tongue Arabic? Uh, or I would. would. You feel like English is, okay. I feel I, mean, I feel bilingual. I feel very comfortable speaking uh, Saudi dialect Arabic. I feel less comfortable writing and reading formal Arabic that. because I didn't yeah. have uh, a foundational education. But my mom, this is what I was about to tell you, she insisted that we not only spoke Arabic at home, but on top of her own uh, PhD schoolwork and her work, she would come home and make us read Arabic books with her, and she would teach us little wow. little grammar basics. And we would what like hate mom. her. Yes, amazing mom. Um, so alhamdulillah, I do speak Arabic thanks to her hard hard work at home and and Baba. That probably made the, the transition a lot easier, at least in some ways, easier going back to Saudi. You know, it's so interesting because it, I still was made fun of a lot for not speaking well. My Arabic got oh. a lot better from in that like adolescent period because I was in the society all, around all of my relatives taking Arabic in school. Um, so I improved. But at first, I remember everybody would refer to me as an Amerikia, the American, mm-hmm. you know, and that would bug me because I was like, but I'm from here, am I not? And that was also confusing having grown up somewhere else mm-hmm. and then learning you're from this place and piecing together what that means. Um, but it was definitely better than not having any language. <laughs> Yeah, then you totally be an outcast. So as you're you're growing up, you're a young woman in Saudi. What was what was that like? What was kind of that clash and an awakening? Not just being in Saudi Arabia growing up as, as a young woman, but growing up in the world. Period. As a young woman, I I had a big culture shock at how I had experiences there. Like I expected Saudi to be perfect, essentially. I had this expectation of it being like this wonderful place. And then it was just a real place with, with issues that I hadn't faced yet in the States. And one of those issues, for example, was being um, objectified and stared at by men as a 12-year-old, mm. as a 13-year-old, as a 14-year-old wearing an abaya. Yeah, Mind you, I was like a chubby, ugly little kid. <laughs> there wasn't much <laughs> There wasn't much to look at. And that's just me being very um, <laughs> frank. I mean, that, that ugly duckling phase is real. Um, but I would, yeah. get, I would get stared at and gawked at, and I would be made to feel like a piece of meat just getting out of my car and walking into a mall or, or walking inside the mall. And it was because I wasn't covering my hair. And I wasn't covering my mm. hair because I didn't choose to wear the hijab and I I refused to cover it just because some of my family members told me it was the norm and I should respect the norm. And I, I kept saying, but it's a religious thing. So if I'm not doing it for God, then why would I do it for people? That doesn't make sense because God tells us to be true to ourselves. You know, so I had all of these, I kind of like came to understand 
religion or start to develop my own perspectives at the same time that I was being told my place by society, if that makes sense, like as a woman through these things like these stairs. And then I was just um, shocked really is the only way to put it. I don't, I don't know if that Islamic narrative has to do much with the women's experiences, but it, it, it had to do with um, my surprise, I guess, at, at this not being a perfect place, this being another place. And then I actually started to face um, pretty painful difficulties that had to do with being a, a woman and a girl and not covering up. Uh, many of my family members were conservative and they would, mm-hmm. um, you know, make it known to me that they didn't approve of the way I was dressing or behaving. And that made me feel like mm-hmm. the way I dressed was all that mattered. Cause I felt like I had a lot to bring to the table, right? Like I had ideas, I had stuff to talk about that was going on yeah. at school, but some distant relatives would just comment like, why is, uh, why is Hanny and Dania's daughter not covered up? You know, and that made and me your feel. Your parents gave you that. Your parents gave you that choice, though. Of course, of course, yes. My parents, my parents gave me that choice, and they, um, they encouraged me to form my own opinions and views on things. Although, you know, just being part of a society, there's still pressure you feel from that society. I think there was a lot of pressure on my dad, who was the father of these daughters, who didn't, oh, I can imagine. didn't dress and behave the same way that his maybe colleagues or peers or his own like family members, daughters dressed and behaved because we had been raised in the West because we went to the American school, which was a co-ed school with, with boys um, because we didn't choose to wear hijab or even the tarha just out of respect to the society. We didn't, we didn't wear it. I remember that was important to me. Like people kept telling me, um, you need to wear it out of respect to society. And I kept feeling like, but I am Saudi. This is my society and my society should respect me as I choose to be too. And so I never wore it. Which is such a, an American individualistic worldview, right, on it versus the this, this societal world. Right, right. And so it, it was just, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's me in a nutshell, right? Like raised over there, have your, your foundational years in the States, um, and then come over here and be told to, to not just be told, but witness everybody caring so much about what other people think. Uh, there's this mm. phrase in Arabic, kalam and nas. It literally yeah. means the the words or the the speak of of other people. That's a scary thing. Is what other people would say or think, and and that didn't make sense to me. Going back to like the Islamic narratives of like it's between you and God, or like, or or just like, but it's my head and my hair. Like, who cares what so and so's uncle thinks? You know, like so it was it was just a really difficult time to negotiate all of these complicated things that I can now articulate and break down. But as a twelve year old, as an early teenager, you you're really processing a lot and you're not sure what's going on. Um, but I did, I think, uh, an important shifting moment for me was my first internship at the age of 16, uh, which was in Jeddah. I worked with, um, uh, my first mentor, Dr. Muldia Bateji at her breastfeeding resource center. It's called the Bidaya Center and it's a women's awareness and breastfeeding resource center. And so I worked with her and I learned from her and I liked seeing how she spoke about women's issues openly. I liked seeing how she embraced her identity and didn't seem to cater so much to um, these expectations that I felt like distant family members had had put upon me. She was very similar to my mother in a lot of ways, but I had never seen a woman other than my mother be that way. And I think that that's maybe Mm. where I shifted to caring about women's issues and my identity as a woman and our place in society and um, things like that. Did, did you feel like even when you're at that age at, you know, between 12 and 16, did you feel like you were the only one 
in your peer group that was struggling with these things? Or looking back, would you say that you know, this is what all girls struggle with in Saudi agenda? At the time, I felt completely like I was the only one struggling with these issues for two reasons. One reason was that, as I mentioned, I went to the American International School of Jeddah. Um, and at the time, Saudis had to have like a certain permission, I think, from uh, the government, from the Ministry of Education, if I'm not wrong, to be able to go to an American International School as opposed to going to a a public school or a Saudi private mm. school. So I had that permission because of my weaker Arabic language. So there weren't many other Saudis at my school. A lot of them were Arab expats. And, so you uh, kind of already felt like you were alone just by that. So, you were kind of in a segment by yourself. Yeah. And those expats didn't have the same rules of the culture of being a Saudi woman applied to them like I did. Like there was no risk for them when they went out to restaurants and a group of guy and girlfriends that one of their conservative relatives would see them and that they would get in trouble totally. or get talked about, right? Because they were here with their parents and didn't usually have extended relatives around and their parents were okay with them going out in these groups because that was more normal in Lebanese culture or Jordanian culture or what whatever it was, you know? So I felt excluded and kind of like I was the only one out of my friend group at school that struggled with these issues because there were Saudi boys at my school that got to go out with the groups of friends. Their parents were okay right. with that. But for me, it was a, a big... Uh, debate at home. I was always upset about it. I was like, but they're my mm. friends, you know, and my dad would say, but there's no reason to see them outside of school. And, and it would always come down to like, really the idea of being seen because I was with them at school anyway. Right. Like what was the difference if, if we had our lunch break and we were sitting and laughing and talking versus if we were at dinner laughing and talking. So it was a fact that you could be out and seen in public by a relative. I think so. I think that was a big factor. Um, and then another factor was wanting me to be, quote unquote, a normal Saudi girl who wouldn't have even been in a mixed school, who wouldn't have had guy friends. And we're talking back when I first moved there, when people were messaging each other with like Bluetooth in malls. Um, mm. So this has to do with the other factor, which is when I started to feel like I was not alone, which is like when I discovered Twitter and I got on Twitter, uh, probably also around the age of 16, 17 maybe. And I realized how many Saudis were working to improve Saudi society. And I found volunteer groups made up of youth that would gather to give food to the homeless, or they would gather to do some kind of cleanup project, or they would maybe be having a discussion. And I started getting so excited finding like-minded Saudis who wanted to create the positive changes and, and build a more cohesive society, um, take part in that actively. And, and that made me feel like I wasn't alone too. That's really amazing that you found your, you know, your tribe on Twitter in that, in, you know, the digital age that we're growing up in. Uh, one, one more question about that, that time in your life. What sort of things do you think that, that formed and shaped into who you are today, that season where you're, you're in some ways, maybe I'm mistaken, it seems like you had to rely on yourself a lot and kind of navigate you, these things in your identity within your culture um, on your own a lot. Is that right? I think maybe it's normal as a teenager to feel alone and to feel misunderstood. I think I, I, I had a lot of support from my mother. I had a lot of support and I think, you know, she saw me struggling. She saw me confused. She saw mm -hmm. me, 
being said, but there's only so much that a parent can do, right? Exactly. Especially when that's the society that you're now living in and that's your society. Again, it's not like I was an expat living in Saudi Arabia. No, I was a Saudi living in Saudi Arabia and my parents were Saudi mm. and these were our relatives and this was our, you know, whatever it was. So, so I did feel supported, but it was definitely a challenging uh, time to navigate those things. And, and like I said, meeting my first mentor, um, my mom was always there, finding like-minded people on Twitter, just knowing that others felt the same kind of thoughts or had the same uh, yeah. interests, like they wanted to work in the same direction. That on its own was like ridiculously comforting because I didn't realize, I thought I had assumed that like all of Saudi society was like the few mean relatives who caused problems for me, you know? And that wasn't true. There were youth, there were diverse Saudis, there were Saudis that believed things different than what my parents believed, what I was taught to believe. And all of this I learned in my late teens. And it was um, beautiful to me to start recognizing that there was this diversity in my society, that there were options, there were different ways to be a Saudi and different ways to be Mm. a Saudi woman, as opposed to what I understood in my early teens, which was that to be a good Saudi woman, you have to be this. Right. And it was like, yeah. no, there's actually yeah. a million different ways to do this. And um, here are living examples of, of people doing it, you know, quote unquote, good Saudi women isn't necessarily what your your disgruntled relatives might think. I'm sorry. The, the definition of a quote unquote good Saudi women isn't necessarily what your disgruntled relatives might think. Yeah. Like we, we would have different definitions of that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So when you found this tribe, when you found, you know, you have this mentor at 16, what was, what did that ignite in you? What trajectory did that send you on? What were some of the things you began doing <laughs> out of that place of feeling like I am not alone? That space of feeling like I am not allowed. Is that what you're saying? Not alone. Like not alone. Out of, okay, good. Sorry. Not alone. I'm sorry. You. Um, it was um, a really nice period of kind of just finally having acceptance of this identity. And I think from that acceptance, I had the space to have ideas and to think of projects that I might want to create one day. Um the last two years of high school, I was doing a lot of ideation and trying to do community work. And um, I just realized that I really wanted to be a part of making this society what I dreamt it could be, you know, of, mm. of improving it. And of I really wanted an active role in that. Like my senior year, I developed this curriculum, working with a group of volunteer friends. Um, we never actually carried this out, but we did build the curriculum and we planned on carrying it out. And it was called... Islami Usnubi, and it, that means my Islam is my behavior. And it was really just like a fundamental basics cu- curriculum for like kids, like ages seven, eight, nine, about taking like basic um, Quranic verses or a hadith mm-hmm. about like, for example, cleanliness, like cleanliness is a big part of Islam. But, and yet yeah. when being in Saudi, if you have ever been to a public restroom, you may be shocked at what you see because there might be water all over the counter and the sink and all over the floor because people perform their wudu and they don't clean up after themselves. Uh-huh. And so like these kinds of little um, inconsistencies would bug me. And so I wanted to, to use education and to start teaching from a young age to create, again, uh, a cultural change for the better. Mm. Um, so so I started getting involved in different projects like that. And um, I think I started realizing that my interest was more around gender uh, and around women's experiences I remember my college essay. (laughs) My college essay was about, it was like this creative. uh, Where did you go to college? I went to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. 
And what did you study in your undergrad? I studied creative writing and interdisciplinary studies in culture and society. And how did, before we get to your essay, which I want to get to, Mm -hmm. how did you come to like, what was the leading things that like got you to that? Got me to Emory and and that major or? Just the major specifically, I think. Oh my gosh. The major was, um, was hard to get to because I came in, I had always wanted to do political science. Like in my high school, I thought that's what I wanted to study. I thought I wanted to like be a Saudi woman and in the UN or in some kind of institution like that. And then I think like the summer before I went to college, I think either that or a little bit before that, there were like some really bad, um, attacks going on in Gaza and in Philistine and things just got really ugly. And I was reading a lot of the news and I was getting really sad. And I was like, politics is always going to be sad. I don't know if I want to go into mm. this field. <laughs> uh, good choice. Um, and so I went in undecided. Um, and then my mom, my, my sweet, amazing and um, observant mother, she encouraged me to pursue creative writing. Emory was one of the only schools in the U.S. that offered creative writing as an undergraduate major. And we had and still have some of the leading poets and writers uh, in American poetry and writing uh, on staff there working. And so she she read about our creative writing major and she was like, I had you've always liked writing. Why don't you pursue this. And I never would have thought of that because I thought I had to have a major that, you know, was going to be lucrative and was going to be useful. Right. And engineer, doctor. That never would have worked for me because the science and the math doesn't, doesn't go so well in my brain. But I was <laughs> like, maybe business, like maybe I can push through that kind of math. And I don't know, I, I was just back and forth, but my mom encouraged me to do creative writing. Um, so I started doing that and I was really enjoying it. And I was writing about I found myself writing about Saudi women in some of the the mm-hmm. short fiction stories I was writing or whatever. It was always this women in the Middle East theme that I returned to in my writing. And then um, the cultural studies or the interdisciplinary studies major came later through meeting um, a great professor. And it was actually around the time that I had the idea for Jahannamiya, but I didn't have the ways that the idea connected to itself yet. And so I was mm. talking out this idea with him and telling him about my interests. And he said, you know, this major is perfect for you because you can connect all of your different interests and write a final product, a project, like a senior honors thesis that yeah. that connects the different disciplines you use. Um, so I'm really fortunate in that my education kind of unfolded on its own and gave me this interdisciplinary um, framework to from which analyze the world and analyze the things I want to yeah. work on, write about, read about. I just love hearing the the kind of the guides that have come into your life. And I, I, I really love that your mom has been um, just a primary guide in your life mm-hmm. and that she's been so attentive in kind of in different steps and stages of your journey. And I think that is something so admirable, um, just to see that attention from, from a mother. Um, and I, I love that even that's, that's framed and set in the, the narrative and context of your life as um, a woman who's speaking and writing about, about feminism and just that relationship with your mom and how impactful um, and important that was in your life. It's uh it's one of the greatest blessings I have. Um, I'm happy to be able to share about it and talk about it and do my uh, best to, to give her credit for all of this incredible stuff that she did. And we laugh now and we joke because I'm pursuing a career that, that focuses on, on feminism and, um, advancing a women's narrative and narratives and, 
um, creating more space for them in, in society globally. Mm. And we joke yeah. because I say, mama, you were the biggest feminist ever. Like, do you ever look at your Twitter? Everything you tweet is feminist. And she says, what? Like, show me. I don't understand. What are my feminist tweets? She says, really? Me? And it's so funny because she didn't have that term and neither did my yeah. dad. My dad, as a Saudi Muslim man, born and raised in, in Saudi, he even he grew up in Riyadh, was so supportive of my mother attaining her education. And after her dental education, she went on to get a master's and a whole other PhD in public health. And it was like a different field. They stayed in the Whoa. States longer. And he supported his wife and the mother of his kids doing that, even though his his like long-term plan was to go back to Saudi and his family was in Saudi. So, so both of them, I would say, are feminists and um, yeah. ha- had a role. I always tend to I forget about Baba, but Baba had a big, big role. <laughs> um, so, so they they might not have used the terms, right? Mm. But their actions and the way they modeled that exactly the way I saw them have conversations and allow me to ask questions and um, pursue the fields I, I ended up pursuing. Like all of that was was totally feminist parenting, in my opinion, and yeah. was wonderful. That's beautiful. Yeah. So back to your essay, I interrupted. Oh yeah, the essay. It's funny. I just remembered it. Uh, I think I wrote, I wrote it. I don't even remember the the. It was like from the perspective of getting on an airplane and leaving Saudi Arabia to go study abroad in the U.S. But I kind of like personified Saudi Arabia into this like woman who was like my friend who I was like mm. taking with me and hoping to come back to. And so it was this very like Saudi woman wrapped up thing of like, I'm leaving to go grow as a person, but I want to take you with me. And so it's like the reason for my leaving was I want to, I want to add to you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So graduating university, you have this amazing, perfect package of, of intercultural studies and creative writing. And I'm assuming out of that was birthed uh, Jehanamia. Is that correct? Jehanamia was birthed uh, during my undergraduate career. Okay. Uh, I. How did that get started? What was the, the spark? So it was also these kind of these guides that you're talking about in my life. Just, just life unfolds. And I, I think things um, are kind of meant to happen. Right place, right time type scenario. But I, uh, mm. I was taking a class on Orientalism my sophomore year. Yeah. And it was the first time I had learned about Orientalism. It was the first time I was learning about this topic. The first time I was reading Edward Said. The first time I was, I felt. For those who don't, for those who are listening, don't know what Orientalism is. Can you give a, a one sentence synopsis? Sure, sure. Orientalism is essentially the way that um, Western colonialists who came into the Middle East um, presented narratives about the Middle East, and they always. Um, they typically presented these narratives as the Middle East being lesser, uh, mm-hmm. being savages, senescent, uneducated, spiritual, lower beings. Like if you look at Orientalist art, it's a lot of um, sexualizing Middle Eastern women, this idea of like what's behind the veil or the harems and scenes of like nude women. And or so Orientalist writing and art presents the Middle East through a Western lens of those colonialists. And it's, it's typically a derogatory lens. And that... Um, this is kind of what I learned through this class that really excited me was realizing that that narrative didn't end when colonialism ended. That narrative actually is still very present today in the news and the media that we consume. It's it's everywhere. The Middle East is presented as a land of sand and burqas. They're not presented as individuals with ideas and goals Mm -hmm. and perspectives and sexualities and 
pasts. No, they're just these yeah. objectified beings. And so um, this course taught me about that for the first time. I became really, really fascinated in the question of representation and representing a people. And then I like mm. had this realization where I was like, oh, self-representation. Why don't we represent ourselves? Why don't we tell our mm. own stories? Um, so powerful. And from there, the concept behind Chenemia first took hold. You're describing Orientalism mm-hmm. and, and the artwork of nude women and kind of this mystique, mysterious sexuality right. of what's behind the veil. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, well, that's what that's what those men have done to the women in the West. Right. And the objectification so of women is, is uh, I mean, it's yeah. present every, everywhere. I wouldn't say men in the Middle East are innocent by any means or historically innocent of that. Um, right. But, but something... But just how they're, they're objectifying the, the women in the same way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, it goes on today. And I, I mentioned to you in our pre-talk about my favorite cartoon is this cartoon of uh, a woman in a bikini and sunglasses with, with like blonde hair and then a woman wearing... Um, a full abaya and niqab and they're each having like a little thinking bubble as they stare at the other woman and the woman in the bikini says everything covered but her eyes what a cruel male-dominated culture and the woman in the burqa is saying nothing covered but her eyes what a cruel male-dominated culture yeah um and i just think that that encompasses that that one cartoon i've talked about it so many times and i'll continue to talk about it because it means so much and it shows how men and uh more than men economies and capitalism are behind Mm -hmm. these these ways that women are taught to be and to dress and to value themselves and it's a really much more complicated conversation than talking about what a woman is wearing you know it has to do with all of these historical factors economic factors cultural factors that that play in but the objectification of women is a huge and consistent theme especially Mm. today with the internet yeah and what I love about that, about that comic too, it's it's pointing the fingers at both cultures, right? Mm-hmm. And saying it, it's it, and like you said, it's pointing the finger at, at men, at economic um, capitalism, and all these different issues. And I lost my train of thought, but and it's um, it's putting the blame on. It's holding, on the real holding each other accountable. Yeah. For this, yeah. who creates this cruel male dominated culture? Who is behind the yes. continuation of this cruel male dominated culture? Uh, and how because can we both, begin to dismantle both that? Are the same. Both cultures are the same. But exactly. They're they different. present themselves differently, but they're actually the, yeah. the, preci- the exact same. And that's, that's a truth that I found throughout my life at multiple uh, stops in places as a woman and and just as a person, you know, having grown up between Saudi and the States, feeling very much American, very aware of American politics and and dialogues, and then also very aware of what's going on in my home country. Um, I, I see a lot of similarity. You know, I, I tell people I grew up in Alabama and then I moved to Saudi and they say, oh, that must have been really different. And I say, no, actually, that's, I mean, like, yeah, there were some differences which we hit on before, but they were also both too conservative societies that like had a lot more similarities and differences. All of my friends, both honor shame cultures, both honor shame cultures, both, um, religiously based cultures, both cultures that expected women to stay in certain spaces and roles. Um, so, so I think so that what, what steps the did whole you take the East you? versus West thing, I'm not, yeah. I'm not a fan. I think we need to really contextualize our arguments and not simplify them into bikini versus burqa, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. 
No, I'm, I'm fully with you. And I think, uh, I think, you know, earlier I said how I would defend on each side of the, the, the ocean. I find myself defending the other side of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And I, I like your language that you've put to it better, better. It's not that I'm defending one or the other, but I'm trying to make the argument of we're equal. Like trying to make that argument of like, really our cultures aren't that different. Maybe it plays out differently and manifests differently. But as you said, um, this East versus West, it's, it's a construct that has been, that has been created. Exactly. It's a painfully uh, simplifying construct that people are now comfortable with, that young mm-hmm. academics are even now comfortable with and bring into the classroom and into their work. But the fact that it's simplifying is what's terrifying for me. And that's why mm-hmm. I resort to using storytelling and narrative as a means of amplifying uh, voices and understanding culture because I think stories complicate. Um, I don't think yes. stories simplify. They show the different dimensions of a person, the different contradicting desires a character can have, um, the ways people change their mind as they grow and become different people. That's what a story shows. It shows that complication mm. as opposed to these like frameworks and narratives that are very mm. binary, very simplifying. Earlier you said this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the seed of Jehenemia was this idea of why don't we bring our own voice to our own people? And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about the community that you have gathered and the platform and the voice and the and space for women to tell their stories and tell their narratives and show that it's not these simple black and white constructs, but they're highly complex narratives with real people, with real history and real culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jahannamiya's main goals are twofold. One goal was to encourage Saudi women to tell their own narratives as a means of breaking Western stereotypes about Saudi women or Muslim women. And then another goal that's that was equally as important was allowing Saudi women a platform or a space um, to tell their stories in order for us to explore Saudi society further because Saudi society has historically been a very private society, especially with regard to women. Women occupy the inside spaces. They stay in the home. That's where they're uncovered. That's where they're themselves. And then men highly dominated the public sphere until very, very recently. The gender segregation mm. has huge implications in terms of culture and socialization of, of young boys and young young girls. So, I mean, Jahannamiya was, was a way to bring their voices to that public sphere to start understanding one another, our differences, our, our diversity, which I think I've, I've said already, but um, I'm tempted to go into the ways that Saudi society is... Uh, having less of that segregation today. I mean, the the Saudi that I... Go ahead. Let me pose a question. uh You you said something that sparked my curiosity. What what are the ramifications of having those segregated society, gender, um, from, from a young age? I would just love to hear what are the psychological ramifications of this in society? So I think it's important to start with that every... uh, family is different in the way that they may or may not practice segregation. So I came from a a very relatively liberal Saudi family where we don't segregate as a family. 
with my cousins or even my cousin's cousins, like we're all together in the same home around the same dining table, perhaps with certain relatives who may be more conservative. Maybe the men are like huddled into a corner and the women are huddled into another area. But um, there was no like hard segregation as far as I, my upbringing. Mm. And there's other families that are even more liberal um, that, and then there's other families that do segregate within their own families from a younger age. And I guess what I'm looking at more when I talk about segregation is the segregation of, again, this home versus the public, the private versus the public sphere. And um, girls and boys being in different schools, girls being socialized to come home from school and play at home with their friends, boys eventually having the right to get in their cars and drive around and go to their friends' houses and stay up later than the girls are allowed to be out later out of their houses. They're not allowed to be out as late. Um, And so I think... I'm kind of digressing on my own, like what I want no, to no, say. No, I think, um, I'm glad that I, that's a good, that's a good clarification to make. Cause I feel um, it's really easy to, to have these overgeneralizations or feel like we're making overgeneralizations. Right. Um, so it's good to make those distinctions that different families function differently. But again, on that macro level of, you know, school segregation, et cetera, that you're pointing to, that's really the, the question that I, also was pointed to what are kind of the, the outplayings and outworkings of that that you see right what's being communicated to boys and girls in that so one important thing that happens i think when when you are in such a gender segregated society from a young age is that there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding and mystery about the other gender how they think how they mm-hmm. function what they want um and then there's also later on in life, you may face communication issues with that other gender. Like a lot of uh, women, when they become employed or when they go to college and find themselves in a co-ed environment of sorts, maybe like, let's say medical students or dental students in Saudi at the public university there, they may have a hard time communicating with their male colleagues because they've never mm. communicated with men before. Right? They're, they're shy. They're not used to this. They've right. only talked to their relatives. So it can pose difficulties in, in those senses. But I think on a larger um uh, macro, uh, like we're saying, like impact it, it, the segregation and this like normalization of women occupying the, the space in the home. And it, it really holds women back from participating and engaging fully in the public sphere, um, from taking part in public dialogue, um, leadership positions, um, being in the, in the, being part of the economy, you know, working Mm. and being part of like conversations our society is having. And I think this is really, really changing now in Saudi Arabia in a way that I never saw coming. And, and, um, like the Saudi that I, that I visit today now as an adult woman who still doesn't cover her hair, I don't get looked at by men the way that I used to in Jiddah. It's gone from like being a hundred percent, it's going to happen to like maybe five to 10% of the time it happens, which is incredible. And I now go out with groups of friends and men, many of us may not be covered or may whatever. And it's, it's really that that's shifted. And I think part of that shifting is our society becoming more integrated. Um, mm. We now have this amazing renov- recently, like, um, I don't know if renovated is the right word, but the government like redid the Kurnesh in Jiddah. Uh, hmm. a couple years ago maybe and it's like this beautiful huge Kurnesh with these playgrounds for kids and you see families and couples and single men or single women walking together in the same space this didn't used to be a thing like 
the Corniche has always um, been a thing and a space for people to do that. But now you see more people than ever before doing that. And you see even couples holding hands or, or whatever. And it's like, we have, we're starting to have more men and women together in public spaces. We're having more women in the work workforce by, by far. Women are now working in malls. They're working in restaurants. They're working at the airport. This never used to exist. There used to be men in all of their positions. You didn't see a woman working at the mall when I lived in Saudi as a kid. So all of this change is is huge and is really putting women um, actively into the public sphere in society. And and I can't wait to see what kind of changes that leads to a few years from now. And, uh, you know, our vision 2030 has even more goals of having more and more women in these positions and having them be a, a bigger component and part of uh, contributing to our economy. And um, so the segregation is really shifting. And I think that's awesome. I might've rambled yeah. on for too long there. No, no, no. And, and now women are able to drive. Yeah. Yes. Right? I mean, like huge, that's huge. There, there's a mode of transportation for them. Like that's huge. That's absolutely huge. That's amazing. I'd like to hear more about the, the work that you're doing now, or even even deeper into uh, Jehanamia and what has what has come out of that, uh, even on a micro scale, like uh, stories from from women or men who've read your your magazine. Has it? Has it had a personal impact on people's lives? And if so, how? I think it has. I think it has. Um, and yet I'm, I'm tempted to like not answer your question and tell you how much, how much more I want to grow and how much more time I wish I could dedicate to it because I know it has this potential because I've seen the, the small scale impact we've had so far, um, I, I get messages from time to time from from people who discover the magazine, from Saudi women who find the magazine, and they say, oh my God, this is absolutely incredible. I've spent my whole afternoon reading this, and I just wanted to say wow. thank you for creating this space. And you know, when is your next deadline? I want to submit, or I want to be part of this. And I, I feel so good when I get those emails. I get, I get tingles. Um, I, I start smiling wherever I am, and I feel like, alhamdulillah, okay, we're, we're doing something good. I'm doing something good here. Um, this is, well, this is the goal is, is to make those young people, those young women feel empowered and inspired to be themselves and to talk about themselves and to share themselves and their narratives with their society and with the world. Their society being one that has often discouraged them from sharing their yeah. private thoughts and their emotions and their, their experiences for fear of it being or, or for causing mm. judgment from the surrounding society. It's almost like you are able to give to these women what Twitter and that society, that kind of <laughs> tribe on Twitter gave to you, right? It's almost like That's they, so funny. Twitter gave you a gift. Twitter gave you a gift when you were at a young age and you're like, I, I found my place. I found there's other people. I'm not alone. Right. I, I mean, it's one of the most powerful feelings yeah. we can feel as a human is I'm not alone. And it's, it's almost as if you have turned around and you say, okay, how can I give this gift that I received and how can I multiply it? One, to give other women a voice and to give, give them their voice back and that other women can find this and say, I'm not alone. <laughs> not alone in this. Thank you. I mean, I really appreciate you um, saying that. I've never thought about it that way, but I, I guess that, that that makes a lot of sense. Like I did find community and it helped me feel empowered to make choices uh, in my own life. And I, I did want to give that to other Saudi women. I do want to highlight something important um, 
I try hard not to use the language of giving a voice because um, we all have our voices. Yeah. Nobody needs to give us our voice. We all have our voice. We all have our experience. We all have our beliefs. Um, What we do need as marginalized people in society, as women in a male dominated and a heavily male dominated society is um, spaced, spaces designated to sharing those voices is encouragement and uh, nurturing voices and um, intentional efforts that that move us towards feeling comfortable mm-hmm. sharing and elevating our voices. So I, I, I try to yeah. stick with elevate. Yeah. A platform for those exactly. voices. Exactly. A platform for, that brings together these already existing voices. All of these stories that we publish in Jehanamiya are stories that I'm sure cousins have told their female cousins or sisters have told oh, their sure. sisters. All of these adventures, whether they're fiction stories or they're nonfiction, you know, we know them as uh, friend to friend. It's just the larger society that doesn't know them. It's it's kept secret from from the whole. And and it's this idea of like embracing our identities and our experiences and being able to talk about them in a larger circle and, and being able to um you know to to be be to loudly be the women that we are, mm-hmm. you know, and to be respected for that and and wanted to be part of the society nonetheless and actually wanted more because of uh sharing our experiences, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, you, you said something, uh, tying something back earlier of how you have been so blessed by your mom and even your dad and how they they nurtured you and they gave you a platform in your own home to have a voice. Mm-hmm. And then you use very similar language with um, the way that you see your role in nurturing and encouraging and giving uh, women a platform and a uh, uh, putting a microphone to their story, to their, to their narratives that already exist. Um, do you, have you seen or had feedback or do you believe or feel that, that you're in some ways serving these women who weren't as lucky as you and maybe didn't have parents that nurtured and encouraged? I mean, that's definitely what I, what I hope to be doing. I really, I do think of when I think of like the one person I hope to impact the most through Jahannamiya is that Saudi teenage girl who feels uh, not necessarily alone, but who feels unsure of whether or not she can pursue a certain life path, of whether or not mm-hmm. she can break a rule or ask for a right from her family or from her husband or from uh, whoever, you know, you know, maybe she's not a teenager, maybe she's a young woman, but like... I want that woman to feel empowered mm. to get over whatever bump it is in her life that she's scared to approach by looking at other women's stories and by hearing how other Saudi women, just like her, got over their bumps um, and pushed the envelope a little bit more. And and um, yeah. what I want to say is that Jahannamiya, in terms of like my goal being to impact this this kind of like average Saudi girl who's who's still learning and still coming to embrace herself. We have not reached our goal in terms of um, the writers who write for the literary magazine because mm-hmm. many of the women who have contributed contributed to Jahannamiya thus far are generally speaking uh, upper middle class educated Saudi women. They are the most privileged of Saudi women in many ways. And I consider myself among them. So I I really, really hope that in the coming years, I can find a way to connect with kind of 
public schools and universities in different cities. Like a lot of our work has come from Jeddah because that's where I'm from and that's where my, my network has been. And maybe some pieces from Riyadh and a couple pieces from the Eastern province. But I would love to get into like smaller towns and cities where there's Saudis who probably think very differently from the ways that I think. And I want to include yeah. their voices and I want to bring this project to them and bring them to the project because that's who it's meant to serve. When I when I do think about it as serving Saudi women, um, I really want to expand the reach of our publication because I want to serve, quote unquote, real Saudi women and not just those of us who have right. the privilege to study abroad and to be supported by our families in pursuing careers dedicated to um Right. To, to, to you know, advancing women's women's rights and right. improving culture surrounding gender norms and all of these things. Like this is a very privileged, very small group of society that we're talking yeah. about. Saudi Arabia is a right. huge country, and I would love to be able to serve and bring this project to to the people who who need it most, perhaps, or who could be really really touched by it, impacted by it, and who could also teach the rest of us about what their experience is like. Because we're we're in we're in our privileged liberal Saudi bubbles. We have no idea right. what those other Saudis are going through, what conversations right. they're having, what conflicts, what is her bump or her goal that she wants to get over. I don't even know yeah. what it is. Yeah. 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 It could be really easy to to point a finger and be like, wait a minute, like, but you're like you're the one percent that's living in this like privilege. Right. Um what what strategies are you planning to employ or deploy to expand the reach of your publication to include those voices? One strategy that that I would love to employ soon is having a team. Yes. <laughs> uh, Nemia has kind of since, since day one been like a one woman job with like a lot of help from individuals, but never uh, a teammate or or. Uh, that's been really, really challenging. We're also not currently, we don't have any funding. Um, and uh, so I think I need to try to find others who are interested in working on the project and growing the project and perhaps others who are on the ground in Saudi because now that I've started my PhD, um, I'll be in Michigan for the next uh, several years, um, mm-hmm. you know, visiting Saudi, but not really living there. And so I would like to, like I mentioned, like get in contact with schools and universities and maybe, um, tell them about Jahannamiya and encourage their students to submit and try to use our online presence and social media, um, better than I'm currently using it to spread our message and serve as a, yeah. an inspiring, uh, kind of space for Saudi women or, or even Arab women, but then keep, keep sharing the narratives of Saudi women. Yeah. Yes. Um, what's the way forward? Like, what would you say the way forward for, for men and women in this region? Like, what is the, the one step that any person could take today to, to move the needle or make a dent or make some sort of change for the better, uh, in this region? I think, um, something that can't be overstated. It's going to seem so simple, but I think it's so crucial. It's just um, listening to women. Don't just listen to women. Listen to the young girls in your family. Ask them what they want. Ask them what they enjoy doing. Um, I really think this is the beginning of encouraging women to pursue their goals and to become the people they're, they're destined to be in our society, which is still very rigid in its expectations of a woman. 
Um, so I really think an important step forward that is in within each of our reach as women and as men is just to listen to young women, ask them questions and support kind of what they tell us as opposed to shooting them down and saying, but women shouldn't do that. Women shouldn't uh, wear that. Women shouldn't be that. Women shouldn't go there. Women shouldn't be out past this time. Like, let's just listen to them a little and give them more space because they're already hearing mm-hmm. all of the should and shouldn'ts verbally or otherwise from society 24-7, especially with the, the internet and the media. They're seeing all of the should and shouldn'ts of what a woman yeah. uh, should be, what they should grow up to look like, speak like, uh, whatever. So I, I mean... I think we really need to listen. We need to keep having these types of conversation, asking important questions, starting with our young girls and boys. You know, they're, mm. they're the most important part of this, I would say. So, how, like, how could, how could someone practically, like, is it literally sit down with your younger sister, sit down with your daughter, sit down with your wife, sit down with your, your aunt and ask questions? Like, what, like... If there's like an actionable takeaway to say tomorrow, do this, what would you say? Just beyond listen, which is, I think is short term, but and long term, how, how can we start and broach the conversation in a short term in like in, in a simple step that we can take in 24 hours? What can we do? I, I think one simple step we can take in 24 hours is asking a young uh, female relative what she wants to be and do with her life and listen to her. You know, I, I, I really do. Like I'm thinking right now of my little cousin. Uh, her name is Lilium. She is maybe 13 years old right now, maybe 12. She is trying to start a baking business. She is an incredible baker. She's constantly in their kitchen making all of these desserts that I look at and I hate myself because she's brought this dessert to the family gathering and now I have to eat it because it looks amazing and I have to support her, but I don't need the calories. Terrible. Um, And she has this like little Instagram account that she's recently created and she, she talks about what she wants. And, um, you know, kids at that age, like they talk a lot. And a lot of times as adults, we kind of want to tell them like, okay, we get it. Like go away now. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to talk about adult things now, but push back that urge to silence that child's voice and instead ask them why she wants to do this and give them some kind of support. Because I think, um, I think young girls really, really need that support. And I think they need it in terms of being themselves and having something they want to work towards or work on that doesn't have to do with their appearance or how they're a good girl, if that makes sense. Like doesn't have to do with how they interact with men, doesn't have to do with the future husband, doesn't have to do with the way she's dressing or her figure. It has to do with like who she is as a person making her feel affirmed in her humanness, just her being a person. Like that's, that's something we really, I think can, can do more for our girls. What I, what I love so much about that answer is that I think it applies to, you know, all 7 billion people, yeah. or 8 billion, 7 billion walking the earth right now. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, that's not just, Oh, that's great. That's for them on that side of the pond, mm-hmm. but it's like, that's for everyone. Like, it is. Across across America, across Canada, uh, China, here in the region, like sitting down and just asking, like, what do you want to do with your life? I I love that answer, and um, I think I hope, guys, if you're list- if you're men and women alike, right? It's yeah, men everybody, and women. everybody. If you're listening to this, that is your challenge <laughs> in the next twenty four hours. Well, I think we are out of time for today. Um, but 
Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for complicating the narratives across the globe. I see you playing that same role that your mother played for you for dozens and thousands, if not millions of girls, not just across Saudi, but across the region. And I really believe and I hope that your magazine succeeds wildly and greatly so that these these young girls can hear the voices of others, can hear the stories and the narratives of others and themselves find that that like-minded, that community, that tribe that you found and also find a place where their their voice can have a platform and can have a have a space which is being held and encouraged and nurtured by you and your community. So I just want to say thank you for your work. I really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. That was so kind. Um, I really appreciate um, you saying all that and, and your well wishes and thanks for having me and um, for, for further furthering that space, you know, making a bigger space to, to have these conversations and, um, and center, center these, these issues. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. I encourage you, go and check out Jehenemia. Go and check out Ahed's Instagram. It's all in the show notes. And finally, stay tuned for next week's episode where we talk about the OJ Simpson and the power of story. Remember, own your story and you'll own the future.